Welcome to the Inside Aesthetics podcast. We host real conversations with real experts from around the world. Away from the filtered bubble of social media, our aim is to educate listeners and explore any topic in the cosmetic and wellness space. We also get a unique insight into the business minds of the entrepreneurs and pioneers who have helped shape our industry. This podcast and its related publications provide news and general information about procedures and products. You should seek professional medical advice and assessment before considering any treatment. Today's episode of the podcast is brought to you by BTL Aesthetics. Now, we've spoken about uh, BTL Aesthetics and their M-Sculpt and M-Seller machines and all the great and wonderful things that it can do. But Jake, you've actually had a few of these treatments. So do you want to just explain to us what it's all about, what it was like? Yeah, absolutely. So let's talk about the M-Sculpt machine in particular for this episode. This machine is for fat burning and toning and strengthening muscle, uh, particularly the abdomen I'm going to talk about. So, how does it work? Well, on the day, you literally turn up with no preparation. You don't need to trim any hair or do anything. You just turn up. It's probably easier to do in gym clothes or something quite light because you obviously have to expose your abdomen. Mm -hmm. You will obviously fill out a consent form and then you effectively lie on the bed on your back and then to what are called paddles, or depending on if you're a female or a male. So if you're a male, you tend to have a broader abdomen. So you'd have two devices or paddles put on your abdomen. If you're a female, you tend to have one in the middle. And then effectively, um, the machine is started up. There's a couple of little beeps. Uh, It's super, super comfortable. And you tend to start on a very low setting. Now, I can't tell you exactly how low it starts, but you just feel some little So like tingling? Tingles, that's a good word. Little tingles in in the abdominal muscles and you think, okay, you know, something's happening, but you're not feeling strong contractions at that point. Like pins and needles almost kind of thing? Yeah, exactly. And then the machine will go through various cycles and the intensity goes up depending on how you tolerate it. Because I'm... uh, a real stud. My, I went up to 100% within three minutes. <laughs> right. <laughs> but joking aside, it, it's a strong contraction. Yeah. And what I mean by that is you feel your whole abdomen brace and, you know, you can see it physically contract. And, you know, it's um, pain is the wrong word. It's, um, it's just a strong maybe? contraction. Uh yeah, maybe at first, just because you, you don't know what to expect right. and, and maybe you're sort of tensing yourself. But once you get used to that feeling, you just let the machine do its work. Is it freaky seeing your muscles move without actually having tried to make them move? Uh, you know, I've tried those little tens machines years <laughs> yeah. ago. So yeah. it's a bit like that. Yeah. But I guess if you've never done it, it might be a bit strange, but you yeah. get very quickly used to it. And then the machine goes through various cycles. Um, so, for example, you might have a shorter contraction it might last two or three seconds and then it releases and it will do that five or six times and then you'll have a period where the machine goes through i don't know the technical term but it feels like little more uh, short sharp pulses mm-hmm. where you just feel the the intensity of the magnet just on one tiny part of the muscle and then that sort of moves down it sort of walks down the muscle to the end of the muscle and what that's doing is it's actually pushing lactic acid out of the muscle so you don't have uh, that delayed onset soreness which you know you often get after the gym if you've not yeah. been to the gym for a while yeah so that's the great thing about the machine is that you know you're you're prepared for your next session in two or three days without that soreness hmm. so you can just go again at 100 percent. right so the session lasts half an hour yeah um you go through various cycles like i said some of the contractions go for uh, what feels like a little bit longer 
and then shorter, and then the pulsed cycles to get rid of the lactic acid. Okay. And then you're done within half an hour. Wow. And Sound- literally, uh, I'm not making this up. I'm not paid to say this or anything else, but you, you stand up even after your first session, and I genuinely felt taller, uh, stronger, if you want to put it that way. I just felt lighter on my feet. And we've been going about this for hundreds of times in the podcast, but I you know, do suffer with low back pain, and it instantly got better. Now, that's not what the M-Sculpt is designed for, but it was just a nice side effect. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah. So, we have to get you on there. Yeah, I, I need to get it done. I mean, as I said, I'm keen to see how, how it feels compared to like a gym workout. So, it'll be a nice comparison to make in terms of the level of pain and, and sort of what it feels like. So, I'm excited. So, if anyone wanting more information on the M-Sculpt or the M-Seller machines or any of the other products that BTL sell and distribute, you can head on over to btlaesthetics.com and enjoy the podcast. Our guest today is Dr. Adam Perchuk, who's a consultant anaesthetist practicing at the Prince of Wales Hospital in Sydney. He's also the supervisor of anaesthetic training at the Chris O'Brien Lifehouse in Camperdown. Dr. Perchuk's main scope of practice covers plastic and reconstructive surgery, orthopedic surgery, colorectal and ophthalmic procedures. In today's episode, we'll be exploring the various types of anesthesia used to control pain in procedures, ranging from general anesthetic to local anesthesia for non-surgical procedures. Good evening, Adam. How are you? Very good, thank you. Good evening. Thanks for joining us on uh, Late Night Inside Aesthetics. Thanks, thanks for joining <laughs> us midweek. Really appreciate it. No trouble. Um, so, could you just tell us a little bit about your background? Where did you train? How did you become an anaesthetist? Just so we've got an understanding of who you are and what you do. Yep. So, um, from the beginning, a lot of people don't understand that an anaesthetist is a doctor. Um, so, essentially, um, I trained uh, through Uni of New South Wales. I did six years of medical school there. Um, there's some uh, postgraduate courses available now, but at the time there weren't. Um, then I did uh, three years as a junior doctor in the hospital system at Prince of Wales Hospital. Uh, in Sydney. And then after that, got onto the anaesthetic training program. And that's a pretty standard time frame. Um, and the anaesthetic training program itself is five years. Uh, and that's with a essentially an entry exam and essentially an exit exam. Right. Um, and that includes a, a fellowship. And I did my fellowship at uh, the Alfred Hospital in Melbourne. Yeah. I think a lot of people out there don't realise that um, anaesthetics is a specialty. It's You don't just become an anaesthetist, you have to become a doctor first. Yep. And then it's just like becoming, say, a plastic surgeon or an orthopaedic surgeon. It's actually quite an intense, rigorous training program after after your initial medical degree. Absolutely. And I think it takes a special person to become an anaesthetist because you're sort of like the unsung hero like, you know, people only know about you if something goes wrong, really. That's that's a nice way of looking at it. And, and, and I would agree to a large extent. And some people liken it to, say, the pilot of a plane. Yeah. You don't really know anything about the pilot of the plane and you don't really care and you don't really listen to the safety instructions. But... If you have a nice, safe landing, you don't think about it. But if there's turbulence, yeah, yeah that you you know about it and you, you think about the pilot. So yeah. I've heard lots of anaesthetic jokes over the years from surgeons. So um, we won't tell any here tonight. <laughs> <laughs> don't worry. I've got lots of uh, jokes about surgeons. Yeah. I won't share those yeah. either for, for my own well-being. I used to be the other side of the curtain. I was a surgical trainee and 
I still don't really know what was happening behind that curtain. I, I'll be completely honest. So we, we call it the blood-brain barrier. <laughs> <laughs> You're the brain, and we're just the hands. Well, I'm not saying who's the blood and who's the brain. <laughs> now, there's different types of um, anaesthetists, aren't there? You've got obviously got uh, yourself, uh, the, the typical gas man behind keeping someone asleep, but then you've got people doing ICU trauma, recovery, there's a few other branches. So why did you choose more, you know, traditional theatre? So so the main super specialties in anaesthesia are um, paediatric or or neonatal anaesthesia um, and cardiac anaesthesia. And some people would say neuroanesthesia or brain anaesthesia is a super specialty, which you do a little bit of extra training for. Yeah. what you'd find, I guess, in Australia is that um, there are anaesthetists who in the country would more do some ICU as well, quite often. Um, and there are, in, in the city as well, there are intensivists who will be trained through anaesthesia. Um, so they do their anaesthesia training and then they specialise in intensive care. Uh, so I, is the question why I didn't want to do any of the super specialties? It's just so, like, as you've heard in terms of the training, it's pretty taxing. Yep. And uh, at the end of all that, at the end of the day, what I really wanted was a, a job, a work-life balance and a yeah. job with variety in it. And in, in a funny way, like, I, I'm a old-fashioned generalist um, and the only places you can get that anymore in the city these days is as a GP, as maybe a paediatrician and I think as an anaesthetist. Yeah, yeah, fair enough. So what does your typical week look like? It's very varied so I kind of go on a four-week rotation and look, I anaesthetise for plastic surgery obviously which is why I'm here in cosmetic surgery um, but I also do uh, major abdominal surgery, colorectal surgery. I do uh, ophthalmic anesthesia as well, so eyes. Um, I do orthopedic surgery and uh, also interventional gastroenterology. So I've got quite a wide range and I also do um, an anesthetic clinic once a month as well. So I just like to keep keep it varied. Perfect. Now, can you explain to us what is general anesthetic and why would you need it and how does it work? What are you doing? That's a great question. If we know, knew what we were doing, that sounds terrible, but if, if we knew, knew what we were doing, there's a little bit of mystery to anesthesia still. Yes. So we don't know exactly in the brain where it works, which is pretty interesting. That's so mad, isn't it? Yeah, it is. I mean, how would you even discover it in the first place? Accidental, probably like everything else? Well, yeah. yeah so, it, you know, it all sort of started with the old ether rag general anesthesia and, uh, and it was all very, very basic back in the day and a lot of people died. These days, things have been modified over the years. So the anesthetic gases are very different. We can also give intravenous anesthetics. Um, and uh, so, so there's things have really changed. Even in the last 30 years, there's been massive advances to make, make it hugely safe uh, in terms of monitoring that we can use. Um, so why? So what is general anaesthesia? Um, people, some people think of it as a triad. So the triad is hypnosis, which is essential, essentially making someone unconscious to a specific level. Now, that level is beyond sleep. So it's a coma kind mm. of level of unconsciousness. So it's different to sleep because if I poked you in your sleep, you'd rouse. If you poke someone under general anesthesia, they don't rouse. So yeah. that's, that's, that's one of the essential differences. So the triad is hypnosis, analgesia, which is uh, pain relief, and muscle relaxation. 
And so essentially there's no response in, in response to a surgical stimulus. You have heard those um, stories, well, not recently, but in, in, I guess in, uh, in times gone by with people apparently reporting waking up during a procedure but not being able to move like that locked-in syndrome. And I guess that's why they started using things like biz monitors to start measuring the brain activity. So, you know, because as you were saying, there's different components to the anaesthetic. You've got the, and correct me if I'm wrong, I'm obviously not medical, but just from my layperson's understanding, um, you've got the part of the anaesthetic that puts them them to sleep. You've got the part of the anaesthetic that stops them from moving. And then is there another part that just deals with pain? Is there sort of those three different things? And if uh, what we were talking about with this locked in thing was people that were, they couldn't move, they were paralyzed, but they were still aware of what was going on. Is that something that you hear of happening these days or is it was a bit of an urban myth? Or It's not an urban myth, unfortunately. I've never had a patient who is aware, um, that I know of anyway. Um, awareness is a thing. Um, we... It's, it's very low incidence, uh, especially more these days. There's higher risk scenarios, for example, a trauma scenario where you just can't give the patient enough anaesthetic because their blood pressure's crashing, et cetera, where there may be an incidence of awareness. Um, as I said, extraordinarily rare. Most or many cases of awareness are actually an out-of-body kind of experience. So it's with no pain and no discomfort. So it's very hard to tease that apart from a dreamlike state. Um, so we don't know where that unconscious is going in that kind of scenario. But there are still cases, and I even know of sort of a colleague who's had a case of you know, not giving enough anaesthesia or a, a person needed a supranormal amount of anaesthesia and weren't getting it. Yeah. Um, and as you say, there are monitors that help us, but there's nothing absolute. Yeah. And I guess in relation to people's tolerances, and this is a question we had maybe um, scheduled for later in the podcast, but we can ask it now is in relation to people that have got high tolerance levels, you know, people that are heavy drinkers, people that maybe engage in recreational drug use. Um, maybe they don't understand that those those habits or those things that they take can potentially affect their ability to uh, tolerate an anaesthetic and may need more? Is that an issue that you deal with? Or? Yeah. So um, what we find is that heavy drinkers and, and people who take certain recreational drugs, which would sort of wind up the liver enzymes, um, may make the anaesthetic, you know, sort of more difficult to metabolise and therefore they're going to need a higher dosage. And we do use guidance in terms of there are monitors that we can use to help us detect whether that's the case. Um, and, and there's a variety of monitors, but again, because, you know, it's not an absolute science and there is some art to it, there's no absoluteness in terms of being able to tell right. whether someone's aware. Okay. As I said, it's exceedingly rare, but it, it does happen. Yeah. Can I wind you back to how it works yes. on the brain yeah. or on the body? Yeah. What are the theories? There must be some theories. Yeah, yeah. So there's, um, look, there's a, there's a, GABA receptor, something called the GABA receptor in the brain, which is associated with consciousness. But I mean, I guess the more uh, the more philosophical question is what is consciousness? And no one in our world or our brains can answer that yet. Mm. And I guess maybe when we can answer that, we'll have a better handle on, on what is general anesthesia. But so so the the main sort of implied receptor is the GABA receptor and that that has to do with consciousness and that's one of the neurotransmitters that has to do with consciousness. Yeah. But beyond that, we don't have a fantastic understanding and, you know, there's still ongoing research. 
It's bizarre. Would have been great. We have um, Dr. Adam here with um, Gary Gora with Meditation Expert. <laughs> yeah. We'll do a combined podcast with Meditation <laughs> on Anesthetics. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, okay, so w- w- it seems pretty obvious, but why would you need a general anesthetic? Yeah, so um, so I guess what we're saying is what did people used to do before general anesthesia? That's probably the question we come back oh, to. Oh, yeah, and so, that, yeah. so, you know, people would have... Um, um, a shot of brandy or a, a shot bottle of brandy. shot of brandy and then <laughs> something between their teeth and they'd hack off a limb if they needed to. Um, I guess our society has advanced, you know, a fair way since then and we're a more humane sort of bunch of people and, and, and with the advent of the existence of anaesthesia, we realise, first of all, we can do more complex surgical procedures and, and help people out and we can do sort of elective uh, surgical procedures for quality of people's quality of life. Um, yeah. And so general anaesthesia is the sort of... Uh, pathway that that aids the surgeon it's kind of the uh i guess the airplane that gets you from one destination to the other i was listening to an interesting podcast a few months ago about um and i can't remember the details about who or or when it was but when they discovered anesthetic um it allowed the surgeons as you said to be more um i guess be a little bit more not wouldn't use the word aggressive but they're oh. able to, to able to do more but this is before they knew about um like infections and things like that so when they found that when anesthetics got discovered the infection rate went up because they were doing more things but they still didn't have a concept around sterility and aseptic technique which is really interesting to to hear how that sort of progressed one one solution created more problems absolutely absolutely and then you've got to attack the new problems i mean surgeons uh the training used to be there used to be physician training and then there used to be butchers who became surgeons that's yeah. that's historically the way it was and so surgeons were historically called mister and um quite I'm a few a surgeons i'm part of the royal college quite, of surgeons quite a few <laughs> surgeons for example the uk still hold on to that title it yeah. mystifies me why you still want to be the butcher but yeah well because we didn't want to be physicians because they're you the boring to... people who push pills because oh, gotcha. we're the cool guys with scalpels <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, that was my old life. I didn't do that anymore. <laughs> I use a syringe, just do a call. Um, Not as good as a hacking knife. Yeah, yeah. yeah exactly. I, I didn't really like orthopedics. That was a bit, yeah, a bit boring. Didn't like carpentry. Carpentry. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. It was carpentry. Um, so, what happens on the day of a, of a GA? Can you just walk us through? You, you said you do the anaesthetic clinic. What, what makes someone really risky versus walk in the park type case? Yeah. Okay. So. Really, we've got. I guess the main um, assessment we do is, is it's a full medical assessment. The main areas that we focus on that are most affected physio- physiologically and pharmaceutically would be the cardiovascular st- system and the respiratory system, yeah. as well as obviously the neurological system because there's a big component of that. But we've also got to take into account things like diabetes, uh, reflux, which I think we're going to sort of talk about fasting and why that's why that's important yeah. for us. And a full systems review in terms of liver, kidneys as well, because they're obviously the, the organs that are metabolizing the drugs that we use. But essentially the main effects of our drugs uh, and the anesthesia and what we do is on the heart and the lungs. Yeah. So And they're the main things that we monitor intraoperatively as well. Okay. So you've done your medical check either on the day or, or in a clinic previously, on the day your your patient turns up and they go to your little room before theatre, which used to scare me because I didn't know what they used to do in there. Well, what are you what are you doing? What what are the lines and what are you putting in and 
Just tell us about what actually happens. Okay, so uh, are we talking sort of plastic cosmetic or uh, more, yes, something more question. complex? Uh, let's stick to cosmetic for now. Yeah, that's sure. What we're so all about. I, I think really what it's all about on the day is we really these days. You know, it used to be that patients were admitted the day before you'd get a chance to really have a good chat, a really good meetup. So I tend to do a pre-op phone call at least to get myself familiar with the patient and have them sort of a bit more That's relaxed. Nice. I didn't know anaesthetists who've done that before. Yeah, sometimes, yeah. yeah. <laughs> or at least my rooms do, either myself or my rooms do, do the pre-op phone call. Um, and then on the day, it's about establishing rapport in a fairly quick uh, amount of time because you really don't have that long. And to be fair, the patient's main focus is their surgery and their surgeon and, and what the outcome's going to be. Yeah. And so I don't want to interfere with that, but I guess it's about... The ma- my main focus is about making the patient feel safe. Yeah. So I think a lot of the patient's fear about anesthesia is, okay, everyone's worried about dying, but realistically these days it's extremely uncommon for something like that to ha- happen. So the next fear is the loss of control. Mm. Someone's putting their life in someone else's hands. And so I want to be that person who a patient feels comfortable to put their, their lives in my hands, basically. Yeah. So really, it's about saying hi. I'm going to look after. I'm here to look after you. Doing reinforcing that quick medical assessment. And I guess the most important, one of the most important things to reassess on the day, no matter how many times the patient's been asked the question, is if they have any allergies and if yeah. they've had any problems with general anaesthetics before. Because I guess in a fit and well healthy patient, which is most of the patients who are coming from for cosmetic procedures, um, the worst thing that could happen to them is an anaphylactic or allergic reaction, really, realistically. Um, Now, that's not, again, not common, but it's one of those things that we want to assess for and and make sure that uh, we can avoid if possible. Okay. So the moral of the story is be be honest with your anaesthetist. Tell them everything. They won't judge you. (laughs) Just be... Exactly. No, no, exactly, exactly. There's no, there's no judgment. Look, yeah, because I guess some people might be fearful to talk about things that they don't want to disclose, or they feel you're going to tell someone. But really, you're asking for, for their safety because if you have that information, then you may handle the anaesthetic differently. Absolutely. And I had a patient speak up the other day and just said, "By the way, I just need to let you know I smoke X amount of pot." And I said, "Perfect." Thanks so much for telling me. I mean, it's just refreshing to yeah. have someone be honest and they get it. They was, he get already, the, was he already relaxed before they had the He surgery? was very relaxed. No. <laughs> <laughs> what do you do when you get people with needle phobias? Do you get much of that with people that are just... There's needle phobia and there's needle phobia. So right. everyone says they don't like needles and they don't like it. That's And that's fair that's enough. That's normal. And you I shouldn't. Think, I think a lot of that can be dealt with just with the way you talk to the patient and calm a patient down, yeah. really, really. And... You can put EMLA on patients, so that's something that probably some of you guys do, you know, sort of for cosmetic injections as well, um, putting some sort of local anaesthetic cream on the hands. I tend not to, again, because the fear is mainly of that first pop through the skin, everyone's scared of it, no one loves it, and sort of just get on and do it and it's done like peeling a Band-Aid off. Yeah, it's, um, never, it's never as bad as what you imagine. It, it looks a lot scarier than what it feels like. From personal experience, yeah. and and I reckon I've come across, you know, I've done millions of cannulas, and I reckon I've only come across across one real needle phobe. Wow! And I, I used a, an anaesthetic gas just to, well, actually nitrous oxide to try to relax him, and he was still hyperventilating and almost jumped off the table when I put the drip in. Now, wow. the cannula, why is it so important? Well, 
That is the route that we can give intravenous medications and it's the route that we can give emergency medications if an emergency comes up. So I much prefer to have a cannula rather than use gas to get a patient to sleep with no cannula for that reason. If you run into any trouble, you've got a cannula available to give emergency drugs through the vein immediately as required. And I do try and impress that upon patients who are worried about the needle that it's a safety it's a safety issue it's much safer to administer an anesthetic but starting with a cannula but in in pediatrics in kids you obviously don't have that luxury so yeah absolutely so you've established your intravenous access in back of the hand or both hands sometimes what are you going to put in them what did Michael Jackson do? Let's <laughs> <laughs> do the opposite. That's a, yeah. that's a leading question. There. <laughs> yeah. So, so um, as you were sort of alluding to before, there's the going to sleep medication and then there's the keeping asleep medication. Yes. Um, so I guess a lot of people think what we do is stick a drip in and give a dose of something and then go to the tea room and read a paper and then That's come what back I saw you guys do when I was in theatre. <laughs> oh, wow. They were, well, those anaesthetists need to show me how they do it. Yeah. Um, wireless, the wireless technology yeah, yeah, yeah. now, it's fantastic. So um, Bluetooth, so, there you go. <laughs> so what we're actually doing is um, putting the drip in, um, going to sleep usually with an intravenous medication now, that may involve an anti-anxiety medication first up, um, then uh, often an opiate as well medication, and that's both for pain relief and it also aids the insertion of an airway, which we'll come to in a sec, I guess. Um, and then uh, the propofol, which is the Jacko juice or the medication that Michael Jackson uh, was prescribed by a cardiologist so completely <laughs> illegal and and off-piste because no one but um yeah. but anaesthetist really should be administering that medication in those kind of doses but he obviously needed a great sleep and yeah unfortunately got one yeah, yeah. well yeah permanent yeah gosh I just, and, and i guess that just demonstrates that it's a coma and that's what you get with propofol. Um, yeah. And then the maintenance of anesthesia. So there's two ways we can maintain it. It's either via the intravenous route or via a gas, which is going to be the patient breathing in and out that gas. Now, when you're in a coma, your airway collapses, right? So you don't breathe as you normally would breathe. So we insert some sort of device into the back of the throat, either through the breathing cords or sitting just above the uh, the vocal cords, I should say. Um, and that is to ventilate the patient essentially. So to keep the patient breathing throughout. So we're essentially keeping the patient breathing, just like you've seen ventilators, I guess, in intensive care. Um, it's that same sort of same sort of idea. And we're monitoring then constantly the blood pressure, the oxygen levels of the patient um, and the ECG of the patient uh, and often the brain waves, as you were saying, with the BIS monitor to give us an idea of how awake or asleep and and constantly changing the dose of the anaesthetic as required and administering um, pain relief medication. So in the good old days, people used to give no pain relief medications, let the patient wake up and then maybe deal with it in recovery. <laughs> These days, we've realised that preemptive analgesia is a good idea. So we tend to give some sort of pain relieving medication before the surgeon even makes a cut yeah. so that the receptors are sort of getting ready for the idea that they need some sort of pain relief. Yeah. Right. And what about all these amnesic effects? that you sort of, because I've had anaesthetics before and you remember like bits and pieces of what the surgeon's saying to you and then you just wake up in recovery, but you don't 
remember anything and sometimes there's things that you said in recovery that you don't remember saying like handing over your bank account details no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah is that is that a, a different drug or is that just a, a byproduct of the of the anesthetic in general so, itself? So there's, so there's two things. Um, so midazolam is, is a benzodiazepine drug that we use that's also uh, that relaxes the patient initially, but it also is an amnesic drug, and often that will lead to the patient not remember, especially if it's shorter surgery the patient won't remember anything afterwards. That's one. Two, it does take the brain a little while to wake up from that completely unconscious state. Mm. So even in recovery, you're not, you don't have your full faculties. So you are able to breathe for yourself. You are able to talk. So you've still got those faculties, but you don't necessarily have your memory back fully. So it's, it's a feature of both potentially that uh, amnesic drug that we were talking about, but the general anesthetic will do that as well. Okay. Yeah. Fair enough. And the gases that you're giving, uh, yes. or particularly for kids when you can't use uh, IV drugs, what are you using? What is it? Yeah, so um, the most common one that's used is Sevo. It's called sevoflurane, um, and it's sort of uh, sort of come a long way since uh, people used to put uh, ether on a rag and put it over <laughs> a kid's mouth and and let them fall into a slumber um, in that, uh, you know, it's much more sophisticated. It gives you a quicker go to sleep and a quicker wake up. Um, And so that's probably the most common, but there are other um, uh, gaseous drugs that we can use. And we often use that to keep patients asleep. It's quite a nice, simple option to keep patients asleep. That's the one you're drip feeding throughout the whole operation and then slowly take your foot off the pedal as you want to wake up. Yeah, so so if you're giving it intravenously, uh, if you if we decide to keep a patient asleep with propofol, so we go to sleep with propofol most commonly if it's a, if it's an adult or someone with a drip in, and then we'll often keep a patient asleep with propofol and some other medications in combination. Yeah. Or we keep them asleep with a gas with the propofol. It's a matter of turning it off at the right time so that the infusion has stopped with enough time for the patient to wake up at, you know, ideally the right time. Um, And with the gas, it's a matter of switching it off and blowing it out of the system, essentially letting the patient breathe it out of their lungs and therefore their brain as well. What happens with those uh, patients where, I remember just a handful where, you know, operations finished, dressings are on and they just don't wake up for like a good half an hour, hour, and you're like, oh, I didn't really anticipate this. But why are those people more susceptible to the drugs? I've found that most common that happens in, in the elderly um, patients and, and uh, the elderly patients don't have the same what we call uh, homeostasis, so they don't have the same regulatory mechanisms that they can just get metabolize things in the same way that you or I might. Yeah. Um, and I guess in the same way that someone with liver disease or heart disease, et cetera, um, would have those same issues. So I, it's generally patient factors um, that could be sort of pathological, but it could just be something about the patient. For example, you know, um, there's just people who just take that time and they just can't wake up and we don't know again because of the mystery of the brain yeah it's a mystery of why they can't wake up yeah and certainly makes us look bad (laughs) (laughs) um why do you tell people not to eat or drink before a procedure and what happens if they do yeah so great question um and important question so i one of the our fears um essentially as we've said 
the once you go to sleep, the muscles relax. So the muscles in your in the back of your throat relax. Everything in your body relaxes. Um, and what we're concerned about is if there is food, um, especially food in your stomach, your body will passively reflux that up through your esophagus, which is your um, digestive tube, and bring that up into your uh, back of your throat and it'll go into your lungs. Food in the lungs is terrible. It's called aspiration. It sometimes causes pneumonia, but the even recent data that's sort of come out from from the NHS actually Mm. um, still shows there's a not insignificant uh, incidence of aspiration and death. Um, Now, in elective, well uh, fasted patients, extraordinarily unlikely again, but in more common in an emergency, unwell patient to have sort of food left in their stomach. But also, you know, if someone decides they just want to have a hamburger that morning because they, they've been, uh, you know, they're just really hungry and why should I fast? That's why you should fast. Having said that, we've kind of, it used to be this old school mentality of 24 hours of nothing. And that's actually really bad for patients. Patients come in nutritionally underprepared for surgery, and that's actually really bad for recovery. So the newer guidelines are more focusing on six hours for food, because in a normal healthy person, that's enough time for food to get out of the stomach, unless there's another issue going on. And mm. we, we're very specific with those patients. So six hours fasting for food and two hours for clear fluids. And those clear fluids can include carbohydrate drinks and there are specifically designed carbohydrate drinks to keep the energy levels up. So I tell all my patients, I want you to drink at least water, if not a carbohydrate drink or clear apple juice up until two hours prior. I want them to have it. It's, it's beneficial in multiple ways. A patient coming in dehydrated and, you know, with low energy levels is going to wake up more dehydrated with lower energy levels. <laughs> yeah. It's bad for healing. Lower blood pressure. And it also makes their veins stand out better if they drink up until <laughs> prior to the surgery. So it makes the, it makes the cannulation easier as yeah, well. So, right. so more and more, the, now that that old school mentality has gone away, um, we're encouraging patients to hydrate themselves. That's yeah. very important. Stomach, uh, water goes out of the stomach really in 45 minutes, maximum, yeah. maximum, yeah, right. unless there's a major issue. And water damage to lungs is also not major. So it's more the particulate matter that we're looking at, specifically acidic Mm. sort of stuff that can really cause nasty damage to the lungs. Okay. So we've covered um, pre-op, we've covered during the procedure, and we've touched on recovery as well. So patient goes home, they're sort of getting back to their normal life, but you've put a lot of drugs into their system, right? Um, And they might be feeling okay, but um, how long do these drugs take to completely get out of the body? And is there sort of any issues about... Any long-term studies to show what these drugs might do to us, I guess, after maybe continual exposure to them? And is there any data around that? And what can people do to speed up getting that stuff out of their system? Yeah, good question. Um, Really, most of the medications that we're using now, uh, apart from maybe the opiate medications, which have slightly longer half-life, the anaesthetic is really out of your body within a few hours um, after surgery. Having said that, I've had patients who have, you know, told me that they've had bizarre experiences with things they've said sort of 10 hours after an anaesthetic. So, you can't absolutely guarantee. And what I always say is I don't want a patient to drive. Definitely not. No matter what sort of other medication they're on, I don't want them to drive until at least the next day, even after a simple procedure like a gastroscopy or something like that. Because you just, 
I mean, looking at the looking at it technically and pharmaceutically, it should be out of their body within a few hours. But you just do hear about patients sort of feeling bizarre for up to 24 hours after. So, you know, I tell patients until you feel back to your normal selves, don't drive. And that's usually the next day is usually okay as long as there's not other medications that they're on. And often we are putting patients having cosmetic procedures on strong opiate medications Mm. or diazepam. So, again, once again, shouldn't be driving operating machinery on those kind of medications. Seems like... um addiction to these painkillers can also sometimes become an issue. I've got a few people that I know that have had major trauma, you know, broken spines and and things like that and inadvertently have become addicted to opioid painkillers after having surgery, which sounds like it's not all that uncommon. People sometimes get hooked on these things. Like, is that just the nature of the drugs or is it is it like a personality trait from your experience and what can people do to try and avoid that happening? Because it sounds like it could be pretty... Interesting. I mean, this is a, a bigger story than all this, but, you know, basically a lot of stuff coming out of the United States is showing that uh, big pharma uh, sort of pushed, especially a drug called oxycodone or endone, which is still commonly used. And yeah. I've got to say, I still prescribe it, um, but they pushed it to an extent that doctors were actually believing that there was no, I mean, they're actually being sued for it now, but um, they were pushing it to an extent where they tried to prove or say that there's no addictive, you know, part of it. Whereas there is clearly evidence to show there's addictive parts to all opiate medications, essentially, except morphine is actually, interestingly, a little bit of a downer. So not many people get addicted to morphine, but a lot of the other opiate medications um, are, you know, clearly addictive. Um, I guess so. We've we've gone probably in the last five years is where we've seen the real outfall of the um, American problem. And I guess the problem was that people just didn't know and they were just prescribing on an ongoing basis. So what I make sure I do is I prescribe a very limited amount. So the 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 maximum and and the Australian system is a bit better and more uh, cohesive than the American system. So you can actually see across pharmacies what patients have been getting. Pharmacists call me on a regular basis to say, did you prescribe this for that patient? So we're we're pretty well regulated. And I guess in some ways we're 15 years behind America. And in some ways that's a big advantage because we've seen what's happened there. Um, So I guess my regime is to prescribe it on a limited basis and prescribe 20, which is the sort of maximum you can get in one dose and not not prescribe a repeat of, of that because uh, patients, some patients, and I, I couldn't tell you, I, I can't pick which patient from the next would necessarily have it, but some patients just love it and yeah. get a big high from it and uh, and will seek it seek it out again. I'll tell you that their dog ate their tablets. Can you give them some more? Yeah, <laughs> exactly, exactly. Well, there are, but this is it. There are presentations. Happy dogs, there. Yeah, dog's gone missing. But anyway, yeah, there are presentations to the emergency department with people just just wanting. Oh, my doctor's gone away. Yeah. Can you just give me another script? And it's a it's a it's a massive problem. Yeah, right. Yeah. So it's something to keep an eye on. There are new newer medications coming out with less of those kind. They're sort of partial opiates and so we're just playing with them at the moment they're a little bit more expensive or the side effects are sort of you know not necessarily something we'd want but I think you're going to see more and more of that prescription and also peeling back a bit of the opiate prescription. I guess it makes sense when you figure that these opioid drugs that were used in like I guess uh, in medical purposes are same 
come from the same substance as things like heroin and, and things like that. So it, it makes sense that it, it makes people feel good and it could become addictive and it can become a very slippery slope. Absolutely. And what I would say to patients is limit yourself to have it in your mind, be aware of it. And I actually write it on uh, on an information sheet for my patients that this is, this is an addictive substance. So short-term use, fine. You're going to get over your procedure first few days and then peel back. And I think the most important thing is prescribing simple analgesics. So paracetamol and ibuprofen, medications like that, or non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs are really good and have been shown, you know, in combination to be as good as a lot of the opiate medications as well in terms of pain relief. And I make sure that there's a sort of weaning system so that the patient knows they have that and they're only having, say, the oxycodone um, as, a, as a backup breakthrough medication yeah. and that that's the first thing they get rid of. Yeah. Fair enough. So we've kind of done the whole circuit from pre-op to, to post-op. What is twilight anaesthetic? Yeah. Why would you use that? Okay. Um, so... As we said before, so there's that hypnosis part of the triad, which is the levels of consciousness. And twilight anesthesia to me doesn't really mean anything. So there's there's everything on a spectrum from conscious sedation, which is you're very relaxed, but your eyes are either closed or I say your name and you open them. So that's the definition of conscious sedation. Um, and then there's anesthesia, general anesthesia, which we've talked about on the, which is a coma on the complete other end of the spectrum. And then there's the in-between and there's a big, big sort of spectrum of in-between levels. Um, And uh, why would you use one at a certain time? Look, I personally never use twilight anesthesia for um, cosmetic uh, procedures, especially because I've found a lot of the um, uh, procedures require muscle relaxation anyway. Um, When I would use it uh, would be a case that's uh, amenable to a bit of relaxation while local anaesthetic is injected and then you can't feel anything anyway. So you just feel nice and relaxed during the procedure. So it's, again, as I said, there's varying levels and you've got to be very careful and have an anaesthetist sort of titrate that very carefully and be constantly monitoring. And and I have had a patient who's come back after a facelift and needed a revision who said, I really don't want an anaesthetic. And we ended up doing that under a, a twilight anaesthetic and they did really well because they were mm. a motivated person. Yeah. And that's that was their strong feeling about it. Um, and and they, did, they did great. But I, I think patient motivation is a, is a big fa- factor. Yeah. I don't think we should do it for cost cutting reasons or any, any other reasons yeah fair enough okay um going down i guess the 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 severity of anesthetic regional blocks would you say that's the next thing down from a twilight anesthetic but <laughs> so so uh regional blocks can be complementary to a general anesthetic or okay. they can be instead of a general anesthetic so yes. um the way for example i do the total knee replacements that i do is i do a spinal anesthetic for them and then i keep them very relaxed with it maybe i guess what you'd call twilight sedation during the operation itself because i think they wake up really nicely and and calmly so i guess that's an advantage of twilight anesthetic yes. uh, is that they don't have any of the sort of side effects or after effects of that general anaesthetic or they don't have some of them um and um 
and then I would do a regional block as well. So I do an injection around one of the nerves that supplies uh, uh, the front of the knee to give them pain relief benefit for after the surgery. But once again, you could, for example, do a whole surgery on an arm under regional anaesthetic. So you could do uh, an injection into the around the brachial plexus nerves, put the arm to sleep. Why would I choose to do that instead of a general anaesthetic? It would be for a couple of reasons. One, patient factors. So you've got to consider, is the patient sick? Are they fit enough for a general anaesthetic? If not, they might, might uh, be very amenable to just having a regional anaesthetic block and, yeah. and working on that so safety factor from a patient perspective and also patient desire and also also, uh, outcome and, 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 you know, how you think the patient's going to sort of uh, feel afterwards. But, so it can be supplementary as well and, and give them pain relief benefit afterwards. So how do you do the regional block using local in specific nerves, uh, you know, the bigger nerves that basically shuts off the whole arm? Yeah, so, pain. so, um, so basically the, to understand local anaesthetic, essentially um, we've got multiple different local anaesthetics, then they have varying degrees of action or duration of action. So lignocaine is a sort of pretty basic local anaesthetic that most people know about. And the simple way to understand its mechanism of action is it uh, blocks sodium channels. And so it blocks action potentials traveling down the nerve and to translate that into English. Basically, you know, your nerve sends messages um, and whether that be pain messages or whether that be movement messages, um, it will block, depending on where you're putting the local anaesthetic, it will block those transmission of messages down that nerve. So you can do anything from injecting local anaesthetic around the nerve that supplies the arm in a very light dose so that the patient doesn't feel anything. You can put it in the back of a hand so they don't feel a cannula. Um, or you can do a more dense block like, say, a spinal blockade, which is also done with a local anaesthetic, but it, it essentially gives you an anaesthetic from the waist down. So yeah. varying degrees depending on where you're injecting and, and what nerves you're injecting around. And how does that differ from an epidural and why would you choose one over the other? Yeah, okay. That's a, that's a semi-tricky question. Um, so essentially, w without sort of having an anatomical knowledge, but <laughs> essentially the spinal needle punctures the dura. So you might have heard of um, dural taps or spinal taps where CSF, the, the fluid that surrounds your brain, sort of comes out. So we actually inject local anaesthetic into that space and that's called a spinal. If you get a layer before that, that's the epidural layer and you can inject local anaesthetic, but you can also feed a catheter into that space. So to give you a simple example of the difference between why I would use one over another, a woman in labour is going to need or local anaesthesia or some pain relief for an unknown duration of time. Labors can take up to 36 hours. Yeah. So you want to feed a catheter into that epidural space. You can provide ongoing anaesthesia, which isn't as dense as the spinal anaesthesia because you haven't quite gone through to that space. Yeah. Um, and you can provide pain relief for an almost unlimited amount of time. Ideally, you don't want catheters to sit in for more than three days. Yeah. Whereas a spinal anaesthetic is a single shot block. You give the local anaesthetic and it lasts usually for about three hours so it lends itself to surgery that lasts for less than three hours okay got it david I, I, totally yeah yeah, yeah. yes <laughs> <laughs> we're getting pretty technical yeah here. i'll have to listen back to this <laughs> fair enough um, it's all right some of the some some of the some of our registrars struggle to absorb that in information I so. Feel so stupid okay that's good <laughs> you, you pretty much covered local but 
when when would you use that in i mean obviously as injectors we we like it as cream or sometimes we do injections but why would you use it and you know what are the problems with it yeah okay so local anesthetic is a great thing because when used properly, there's really minimal side effects uh, from it. So you can use it, as we were saying, it essentially blocks sodium channels. So you can stick it on the back of someone's hand and stop the tiniest pain receptors that are in the back of their hand for when you're going to put a cannula in or, for example, do a, uh, a local anaesthetic injection or a dermal filler, for example. Yeah. Um, so, so from something as simple as that to grading that up to once again, you know, injecting it around one of the bigger nerves to block sensation in an arm, um, to again, one of the bigger, other bigger nerves to, you know, blocking sensation to the, you know, the lower legs or, or whatever you really want. Yeah. Um, the problems with it. So extraordinarily low risk of, of um, uh, anaphylaxis or allergy. Sometimes with some of the uh, the products that come with the local anaesthetic, you can get a, a small allergic reaction or a local reaction to that. Yeah. Um, as um, we were just sort of talking about beforehand, you can get a little burning sensation as local anaesthetic injection. And that's mainly, apart from the fact that you're injecting something so that hurts due to the acidic properties of yeah. the uh, local anaesthetic. And that's something that's very hard to overcome. Um, I think uh, other than telling the patient that this is what's about to happen, but the, you've got to understand the reasoning for, for why we're doing it, and that's to prevent more ongoing pain, essentially. Yeah. Um, the I guess the main thing we worry about with local anaesthetic is local anaesthetic toxicity. Yeah. And so that's, in, that's when essentially the blood levels in the patient are higher than the, we, we want them to, to be. And the presenting sort of symptoms of that starts with sort of neurological symptoms of excitation. So you can feel a little bit of num numbness and tingling around the mouth uh, to sort of feeling a little bit up to then uh, being a, a neurological depressant. And so that can cause um, seizures and then coma. And then cardiovascular collapse is, is sort of the sequelae of that. So problems with the heart, obviously. Um, in the sort of doses that you're talking about, it's extremely unlikely that would occur. Yeah. And where we worry about that occurring is once again, the more frail elderly patient, patients with problems with their liver or kidneys that can't metabolize as quickly. Yeah. Um, but it is something that, that we need to be aware of and especially us um, injecting it on a more common basis in certain areas of the body where they're closer to blood vessels it's more often absorbed more likely absorbed into the blood vessels so we've got to be pretty careful with our dosing yeah so it's all done on dosage or concentration versus the person's weight effectively isn't it it is um it's an inexact science in the sense that you never know what the patient's blood level is but we've got sort of numbers that uh that sort give us an idea or a guideline at least. And, and very few patients will sort of have problems outside those guidelines that yeah. we have. Now, off air, you told us that you've got a really simple way of <laughs> remembering or calculating this. So can you give us a simple example of anything you like really? Of, yeah, of so health? I guess, uh, look, it's a really confusing system, the, the nomenclature around local anaesthetics. But when we like, I think it's easy to go back to just a fairly common thing, which is say 
1%. Yes. And what 1% means is 10 milligrams per mil. Now, why it means that is really confusing, but if you can just remember that 1% equals 10 milligrams per mil, then you have to, then what you do have to know is the weight guidelines for patients. So, for example, lignocaine is essentially four milligrams per kilo is a sort of safe dose without adding adrenaline to the mix. And then you've got other drugs like bupivacaine, which is about two milligrams per kilo. Ropivacaine, which is about three milligrams per kilo, is a sort of technical safe dose. Now, we actually administer local anaesthetics intravenously as well. And so I've, you know, for there's some evidence around giving local lignocaine infusions for patients for major abdominal surgery. So the other day I was running a two milligram per kilo uh, per hour infusion on a patient intravenously. So it just shows it can be used very safely, even intravenously um, at a lower dose than the recommended dose. I've seen that done once on the ward for someone who came in with kidney stones and we just couldn't get on top of his pain. And that was the final... Did it work? Yeah, it did in the mm-hmm. end, but it was pretty hardcore. Well, well, well this is it. You can Would it be use painful it? having that injected intravenously? No. Okay. no. Once, the, once the cannula's in, That's it's it. not painful. Okay. Yeah. So going back to your little um, example, yes. let's say you've got 1% lidocaine or lignocaine. Uh, you said that the safe dose is 3 milligrams per uh, kilogram? Safe, 4 of, milligrams of, per kilo. So, you know, calculate <laughs> that out. Say for you know, a 50 kilo person, just to be safe, err on the side of calling everyone 50 kilos. So you say that 200 milligrams then is the safe dose for that person. Yeah. And then you can figure that out. So you've got your 1% equals 10 milligrams per mil. So 200 divided by 10. This is where my brain shuts off. This is the easy version. Gives you that, (laughs) gives you you 20, which equals, you can give 20 mils. But I think the thing is that especially when you're dealing with topical local anaesthetic creams on the face, it's pretty safe as long as you're not covering the whole face. And I guess the other other thing to be aware of is there's uptake by the blood vessels. So as long as it's away from blood vessels. So when you're getting close to mucous membranes, like things intraorally, so in the mouth, then there's going to be greater uptake. But if you're on the outside, say on the cheeks or on the top of the lips, it's pretty safe. And especially with what you're using, the topical 5% is really low risk unless you're going to smother someone's whole body with the, you know, 5, 5% patches, then you can run into trouble. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's sort of relevant. People are listening. A lot of them are skin therapists and dermal therapists yep. and maybe even injectors using a needling pen. And often they will, you know, grab the cream, uh, which is, you know, depending on what their qualification is, they might not understand you know, they just think it's a cream that you can just slather on and do the whole neck, chest and face, then I think you probably could run into sort of Absolutely. possible toxicity. So, And I would definitely wouldn't advocate for that. So, um, so yes, uh, there's, there's no absolutely simple way to remember it, but you need to know exactly what you're dealing with and yeah. do those calculations. And I guess if you assume um, everyone's 50 kilos, even if they're more, that's an, that puts an extra degree of safety uh, into your calculations. I but you still need to know your numbers. I mean, it's just... You just need to be able to sit down and crunch the numbers yeah. and understand oh, what's generating. I need to see the maths. I can't just do it in my head. But you know, once you've written it out, you can you can follow that and understand it. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, the, the creams can be a bit scary because I think that it, it would be easy to be complacent. Oh, it's a cream. Just slap it on. 
it's not like it's hard to think of a cream as something that's going to be that dangerous so i think that's yeah and i guess i'm not aware of you know what exactly is going on with how much is being slathered on if you're dealing with one area of the face. And so I, I actually had a chat during the week with a colleague of mine who's an anaesthetist who does do um, does do cosmetic injections as well. And essentially she was saying, be sensible, yes. put it on a part of the face. If you need to do more than that, bring them back another time yeah. or leave a few hours in between because, you know, a lot of these medications, especially lignocaine, short half-life. So you're pretty safe after, you know, an hour or so. Yeah. Um, but you just got to be very aware of, of the potential risks and geez, yeah. you don't want that happening without resuscitation equipment. I mean, we've got, you know, we're, we're in operating theatres. We've got the uh, luxury of having full resuscitation equipment available to us, including intubation equipment yeah. if we need it. And, and other doctors. And yeah. other doctors and monitoring equipment. So, yeah, yeah. It's, it's absolutely not to be taken lightly. Yeah. yeah. It's probably worth flagging to our listeners and David, you can chip in because mm. you were sort of purchasing a lot of this stuff. So about... A year ago, I think there were some guidelines sort of fed from the New South Wales Health about, you know, people traditionally years ago were using compounded creams, which were very strong. Yeah. Great. They're very effective. But, you know, getting that safe dose and and not necessarily knowing exactly, uh, you know, effectively how much you're giving someone. And I think the risk in in, in some businesses that you're describing is that a cosmetic injector might have this cream and they know how to use it appropriately. Hmm. And then say a dermal therapist or walk by and go, oh, I might just grab that. I'm doing a skin needling later without yeah. realizing that this stuff's really strong and just using it without understanding yes. the complications. I think that might have been where some of the issues may have come from is yeah. getting into the wrong hands. And that, that's a good way of looking at it because I guess coming from my perspective, I go, gee, they're really safe and they're great because they've got so many purposes. But but exactly in in the wrong hands or in someone who doesn't understand that it's a drug yeah it's a drug like, well, like any other drug and there, yeah. and there yeah. are you know there are potential problems with any drug that anyone uses so, you yeah. know and also these creams are scripted so they should be scripted for a particular person not a communal pot <laughs> i think that was the main issue yes <laughs> right that the, the legal uh clamping down if you like came about so yeah so just if you're listening uh, and and you've still got these pots put them in the bin please yeah (laughs) yeah good point yeah um perfect so we've done local anesthetic so i think it's a good time to talk about what is pain that's a a weird one isn't it it's a good it's a good question and so for this as i sort of mentioned before i'm going to have to refer to the who um uh, definition of current definition of pain, which is um, I'm reaching for my phone here to read it out. So, an unpleasant sensory and emotional experience associated with actual or potential tissue damage, or described in terms of such damage. So, as you can see, it's just such a huge, wide-ranging thing, and we don't, you know, it's 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 an experience. It's not it's not objective. It's up to the patient. It's and there's so many social, cultural, and other behavioural factors that can factor into pain. So you can have one person who feels, you know, what's the worst they think is the worst pain in the world, and another person who will have no pain from the same procedure. And I've seen that time and time again with the, you know, the cosmetic operations that we're doing. That yeah. some patients are in absolute agony afterwards, and some patients are absolutely. Are they Mediterranean? Fine. <laughs> <laughs> there are definitely cultural uh, <laughs> cultural dif- differences. There's no question about that. Yeah. And I think anxiety actually plays a huge role. So you'll often see that patients are 
who are wound up, and that's been proven in studies, that um, patients who are wound up beforehand and are, and are ex, you know, excessively anxious, it plays a huge role. And actually there's been more studies done now looking at comfort scores rather than pain scores. Because as soon as you ask a patient afterwards, are you in pain? The answer, the correct answer is yes. Mm. So, but if, if the question is, are you comfortable at the moment? Is there anything I can do to make you more comfortable? That's uh, so. There's, so there's, there's a neurolinguistic program. There's, there's yeah. a bit of NLP that goes into this, <laughs> and I think you know we can sort of start introducing and, and we'll look. There are studies into asking patients comfort scores instead. Yeah. So one of the things that you know we see commonly in the injecting world is distracting techniques to try and dull pain or, or make people less aware of it. Um, can you talk to us about any of the simple devices? Um, I've seen devices that sort of vibrate on the skin. I've seen people just tapping on their legs whilst their face is being treated. I've seen squeezy balls. I've seen people use ice. I think the, there's a common theme here that you're trying to distract in some way. Yeah, so uh, there's, uh, there's two things going on. As, as And often when I'm putting a cannula in patients, um, I'll often get them to wriggle their toes and or even do a cough when I when I put the cannula in yeah. um, because there's the distraction technique. So that, there's that one thing going on and I think that's very helpful. And I think the other thing that can go on is, and I'm not sure exactly what devices are used out there, but there's, for example, something like the tens machine which is often used in labour and the, and I think from what you were telling me there's other sort of little distraction devices that can sort of tap on the skin yeah. and essentially that works on what's called the gated control theory of pain where essentially what you're doing is not distracting the person's mind as such but distracting the receptors that are, that are um, exposed to pain so that they're essentially not listening to the pain signal as it comes through they're, yeah. they're actually dis, they're, you're distracting the receptor rather than the person themselves okay. and and i guess things like ice would work through the fact that um the uh pain fibers are exactly the same side diameter as the uh, temperature fibers and so it would again sort of distract those kind of fibers that are running in those similar pathways Fair enough. So we've got a couple of listener questions. We put, we put out a poll yesterday uh, just to see if anyone's got some specific things for you. Um, why do people wake up emotional after a GA? It's a, it's a good question. And I think once again, it comes back to, unfortunately, I'm going to have to give the big I don't know. And again, <laughs> look... Um, patients do describe big dream states under anesthesia and it, it is to do with the conscious. Maybe we can come back to that meditation and, yeah. and consciousness yeah. and, and figure out. But but really, you do find a, a percentage of patients wake up either really happy and actually propofol itself is a bit of a euphoric drug and some of the medications that we can give, for example, oxycodone can make people feel euphoric mm. um, and also dexamethasone, one of the medications we often give for as an anti-nausea medication again can make people feel euphoric afterwards but people can also wake up really just crying their eyes out and yeah and yeah so Fair it's enough. obviously evoking something in in the brain that yeah it's hard to touch on so that question was someone called simply sculpted at simply sculpted on instagram okay uh, question for my good question lisa rush is a registered nurse injector in willara what's the role of nitrous oxide well, I guess as a pain relief, how does it, that work or laughing gas? Let's yeah, call it so that. laughing gas is 
almost like a percentage of an anaesthetic gas. So, so once again, it works on sort of similar pathways to anaesthetic gas, but it can't, doesn't have enough potency to actually anaesthetize you. So again, it's taking you somewhere along that spectrum and it really can take the edge off. It's obviously in a mix with oxygen to keep it safe. And so yes. you're still breathing some oxygen, um, usually in some sort of monitored situation, ideally, or with monitoring readily available. Um, and uh, it just does take that edge off the sort of the whole procedure. So there are some little green whistles that I don't know if you can uh, purchase or get panthrox. Is that what it's panthrox? called? Panthrox. Yeah. Is that the methoxyfluorane? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah. If you go to an okay. ambulance, yeah. That is an old general anaesthetic. It's actually an anaesthetic gas that we used to use um, and it, it caused problems for the patient's kidneys. Now, in the doses that are in those little whistles, one, it does, once again, it doesn't give you a full general anaesthetic. And, and the nice thing, and the nice thing about the, though, the, that, particular anaesthetic gas is it has analgesic or pain relieving properties yeah so it's, it's actually a really lovely medication and, and i quite like charting it for people on the ward who are having dressing changes and things like that okay. where they need that short burst of pain relief because the question was do you think that that would be well both effective but sensible i.e safe in a non-hospital setting i.e. an injectors clinic because it does very happen. hard for me to um tell someone what's safe in another setting. So I'm comfortable with my setting and I'm comfortable with what's safe in that sure. setting. The ambulance officers use, you know, use uh, that, that methoxyfluorine sort of whistle yeah. um, on transfers to hospital. And we use it in a hospital setting, not necessarily m monitored because I don't think it's, it's not a general anaesthetic as such. And it's in a metered dose, which is pretty safe dose. Yeah. Having said that, I'm unfamiliar with using that stuff outside of a hospital yeah, setting. I, so it's hard I for me to comment. Like it's overkill. I'm sure it works and it, it sounds amazing, but it, it just seems like overkill. I, I would reserve that for having your, your wrist put back in place in ED or something. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So uh, yeah, exactly. I can't comment on exactly <laughs> what the patient's requirements are in that setting. So fair enough. Uh, and yeah, this is an interesting question. And we hear this a lot from patients even. Can someone take a Panadol or even a codeine prior to having a needle in their face. And is there evidence that that is going to take the edge off their discomfort? I don't think there's a major downside to taking a paracetamol um, or an anti-inflammatory medication. Um, I, actually, I'm not sure how you guys feel about the anti-inflammatory medications in of terms bleeding. of the, the bleeding risk. Yeah. It's actually been proven to be you know, pretty pretty low and, and minimal. So we, we advise patients that most surgeries, they can have it before these days. Yes. Um, but I, I don't see a major downside. Codeine, you're going to potentially have side effects of, you know, some people get nauseous. Some people feel a bit heady with it. So, do you want to put that on top of you know having an injection as well? Yeah. But pre-dosing with paracetamol, I really think is generally a pretty innocuous medication. So, but does it actually work? That was my question. Um, because I mean, it, it's not like you know you've got a toothache and you're taking the edge off it. You're shoving a needle in the skin. Yeah. By definition, it's going to hurt. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I wouldn't say there's necessarily a lot of benefit. I think a lot of the benefit would be in the belief factor. Yeah. So if, you know, um, uh, there, there is 
you know, a, a certain element of if you think it's going to work, there's a, there's it's going to help we'll crack you. crack on because it's safe. Placebo, yeah. 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 Placebo, and placebo is 30% effective yeah. in a lot of cases. So, gee, if it's going to help 30% of people, that's not necessarily a bad thing. But I, I wouldn't necessarily advocate that it's going to make a big difference. Fair enough. Oh, now, you forgot to mention who asked that question. I, oh, that was Lisa as well. Ah, okay. Thank you, Lisa, Greedy for your two questions. Two questions. <laughs> um, Someone asked, Zumba or spinning? <laughs> is, that, is that an in joke? <laughs> no, no idea. Don't get it. Thank is, you for that sorry. question, White Coat Beauties. <laughs> <laughs> this is a, a, a question asked by about well, at least 10 people. Oh. Uh, Allure Derma, Radiance Inject, Isla Cosmetica, a few others. Thank you for the question. I think it's more fair if, if I answer this, but I'll get your opinion yeah. first because I know you've spoken to your injector friend. So lots of people want to know about uh, doing a, a local block on the lips yep. pre-lip filler. Yep. I know you don't do that in your practice, no. but um, what, what are the problems that you think might uh, come about by doing that? But also obviously the benefits are it's going to cause a total block. Yeah, yeah. So the the blocks would be an infraorbital block and a mental block, I guess, if you're doing it for lips. And yes. uh um, one Can you just touch on how you do that? Because there'll be some people wondering what that is. It's, so it's not, I don't do it very commonly in my practice, but essentially you're going either, for the infraorbital, you can either do an injection sort of inside the mouth in the upper lip, or you can do it sort of just, well, it's a little way below the eye next to the nose, I guess is the simplest way to describe it yes. on air. Um, and then the mental nerve is sort of sitting below your lower lip. And yeah. so you probably inject, uh, peel your lip back and inject like into the gum. injection, it's, effectively. Exactly, that's the way to describe it. Sorry, that's the best <laughs> way to describe it, yeah. is a dental injection. And two things um, spring to mind. One, there is that risk of local anaesthetic toxicity because you're nearer to blood vessels. Yeah. Um, two is, uh, is it overkill? Because and, and it's not it's not without insignificant pain, that injection, and more so than just injecting under the skin. Yeah. Um, and I guess from speaking to the, my colleague who does the injections, um, her sort of take on it was essentially you're going to get deformation. So you're going to have a droop of the face or you're going to have an, a cosmetic result that you're not necessarily going to be happy with yes. anyway. yes. So a client's looking in the mirror looking for a great result and they've got sort of a mouth that looks like they've had a stroke. Yeah. <laughs> and it's, it's very difficult to, to gauge swelling. Um, you know, sometimes a little bit of sensation is good in case there's a problem. So all of these yeah, things are... people biting their lips as well because they can't feel them. Yeah, absolutely. And, also, the, yeah. and it can last for a little while afterwards as well. Plus, you know, people decide to go and have a cup of tea afterwards and scold themselves, etc. Yeah. So, yeah. so I think we've agreed it's probably overkill. Well, especially all the products have local in them now anyway. So after the first injection, sure. it's actually... It's got to get in there first. Yeah. That, that's the really the, the issue. You've got to needle the lip somehow to get that anaesthetic with the yeah. filler in. But, uh, you know, from my experience, the, the 4% creams, the ones that don't need a script, um, put it on in a reasonably thick layer, both on the red and just outside the the lip, leave it on for a good 
literally five minutes and then for the last and I'm doing my notes as they're numbing and then rub it in for the last two or three minutes because it, it helps the absorption of of uh, the local anesthetic and I've, I've never had a problem and someone said I, I, I couldn't tolerate that. I think a lot of the thing is patience like you need to recognise that there is an onset time and I think a lot of people love to just jump in so they'll put local anesthetic in for a cannula and then they'll try and put the cannula straight in and of course it's going to be sore it hasn't had the one minute it requires to work so yeah just got to yes. give it that time uh, and the last thing uh, well it's not really a question at all my friend Raj uh, he's a consultant in East in London says hi <laughs> so there Raj. we go how are you thanks for that Raj <laughs> <laughs> uh, anyway so that was the end of our questions thank you so much for your time it's been really insightful yeah, to my thank pleasure you. thanks guys find out what goes on when you're in a coma <laughs> um, we might uh, sort of touch on some other questions in another episode we've run out of time unfortunately yeah um, but thank you again so if anyone wanted to ask any I don't know specific questions do you have a I don't know an email address or a LinkedIn address or anything where someone might ask you uh, you know some questions we did actually have one question of how do you get into anesthetics I mean you sort of touched on yeah. that but maybe if someone wants to ask you any other questions yeah absolutely look um, my email Email. I'm, I'm not on social media. So <laughs> my email is um, adam at perchuk, P E R C Z U K dot com dot au. So pretty simple. Perfect. But difficult. <laughs> Thank you very much for your time. Thanks, okay. Adam. Thank you so much. See you later. Today's episode of the podcast was brought to you by BTL Aesthetics. Now, Jake, we've spoken all about the M Scott machine and the M Sutter and all the wonderful things that they can do, but there's some really interesting facts that perhaps would be very interesting to highlight for our listeners. Can you tell us about them? Yeah, absolutely. So I thought this would be sort of interesting for clinics or, or doctors or maybe even nurses who are listening who are potentially interested in purchasing an M-Sculpt machine. So according to the BTL Aesthetics data that they've collected in their market research, 20% of M-Sculpt patients are male. That's huge. I mean, when you consider like the skew in, say, injectables between male and female, it's definitely not 20% male. So no. this is interesting. Yeah, I mean, I would guess completely anecdotally that at best five or ten percent yeah. uh, of injectable clients are males but probably less than that in your average clinic yeah so 20 percent of mscope clients are male and you know if you're a clinic offering multiple modalities of non-surgical treatments body face skin etc that's a huge new avenue of clients yeah, absolutely another quite interesting piece of data was that the average M-Sculpt machine is generating $29,000 per month for a clinic. That's huge. So that's yeah, absolutely huge. Yeah, so basically you're getting, getting to tap into a lot more male patients and yeah. it's like averaging, what, an extra 30 grand per month in revenue for your business. Absolutely. And the, the great thing about the M-Sculpt machine is there are no consumables. Um, consumables. At all. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's crazy because mo most devices, you've got to pay for cards or treatments or hand pieces and things like that. So yeah. it's like a, a one price and you don't have to worry about anything else. There's no other surprises. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. This is interesting as well that they've noticed that around 43% of patients in the clinics, at least that they spoke to, are of the millennial generation. Hmm. So looking at uh, the millennials yes of course they're interested in injectables but of course they're really interested in what their body looks like as well yeah. 
So if you were a clinic looking to offer, you know, holistic treatments, having a machine like MSCOPT where there's minimal downtime, minimal upkeep, great profit generation. And minimal training. And minimal training. Yeah. You know, this is a device that's really going to sit in your clinic really well. Yeah, awesome. So if anyone wanting more information on MSCOPT or MSCELLA machines or just want to check out what BTL does and all their products, you can head on over to btlaesthetics.com. And thanks for listening and I hope you enjoyed the podcast. For our latest news, upcoming guests and episode topics, follow us on Instagram at inside underscore aesthetics. During the week before every recording, look out for our Instagram stories as we'll give you the opportunity to submit your questions to our guests and get a shout out. You can also DM us for any other information, suggestions or guest requests.